Welcome to Power, Strength and Vulnerability, the mental health podcast. It's time to make mental health a normal conversation with your host, Shane Kelton. Today, special guest, someone who's gone through something similar but from the mother version is Emily. So I've got Emily to chat to today. I just want to give a little bit of a rundown about what has been going on in Emily's life the last 82 days plus more. So you had Ava was born on the 13th of May this year. Yeah. But Ava was born at 26 weeks plus six days gestation. The birth, you live in Gippsland. That's correct. And due to the prematurity of the birth, Ava was transferred to Mercy. For those that probably will listen to this, the first listeners will probably be, I guess, probably people from school. So we know each other from school um, and probably have sort of seen bits and pieces of social media from each other over the years, but haven't really been in contact until the last couple of months. So welcome, Emily. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Despite what's occurred, it's like I'm, I'm excited to talk about what we've got to talk about. I think it's something we're both passionate about. So firstly, I will say that your partner is Michael as well. Give him a bit of a shout out early on. So he keeps listening for a little bit if he's listening. <laughs> we got you on to talk about the early birth of Ava. Both of us are really passionate about creating education about, around early birth and I guess the NICU unit. I want to get straight into it and talk about the pregnancy itself and what that was like for you. So um, obviously prior to falling pregnant with Ava, we'd had a failed pregnancy. Um, so we were super excited. Everything was going great. We got to our 12-week uh, scan. It was pretty treacherous up to that point. There was a few little complications along the way. Um, we got to 12 weeks and we're like, all right, we've made it over the hill. And that's when we started telling our family. So we actually even kept it from family for quite a while. Um, nothing was said at the 12 week scan to us directly. Uh, it wasn't until I went to the GP and asked for my hospital referral, uh, that he decided he was going to tell me that I had a two vessel cord, which, um, apparently is quite common. And, uh, what it just means is that from 32 weeks, you've got to be closely monitored. Um, if bub stops growing or because there's not enough nutrients being delivered to bub through the placenta or if there's any swollen kidneys uh, to the point that it may actually affect future development for the baby or cause long-term issues that you would be induced early um, and like have the baby earth side really early on in a special care nursery. Yeah. So from the word get-go, we, we sort of were prepared for a prem, but we were thinking, we're always told about 36 weeks, which your baby's full classified full term then. Yeah. Um, so it was like, oh, you know, you'll have a 36-week, I'll probably spend two to four weeks in a special care nursery and you'll be home. Um, and other than that, pregnancy was quite normal. I was fit and healthy. I got to about 22 weeks and I stopped walking, um, going for like my morning walks with the dogs because it just, it was exhausting. Yeah, um, so, which, which I think most mums are probably nodding their head going, yep, know that feeling. Some would be 18 weeks, some would be 25 weeks, but yeah. Yeah, so it was, it was just to that point that um, I, I'd stop that and otherwise I was feeling pretty good until the day before Ava was born where um, I, just, I, had, I just felt off, like I had no energy at all. I didn't want to get out of bed, which is very unlike me. Um, and I happened to work at the hospital where I gave birth to Ava and I, I went into work and I was like, I sat there and one of my colleagues was like, are you okay? I was like, no, I'm not. So I went back around to the ward to get checked out, um, which they did a speculum um, for anyone who knows anyone who's been pregnant. Obviously that's the internal look. Yeah. Uh, and then, a, then an ultrasound, they're like, you know what? You're all good. Like go home, just have a rest. So I did. <laughs> and the next day I was like I wake up and Michael works shift work so he has um, like odd days off and um, I was like I'm not, going, I'm not going to work today I don't, I don't feel well at all um, and he was like are you okay I was like I think I just need to sleep 
But I literally had a Netflix day, which is also very unlike me to spend all day watching Netflix. Um, and I got to dinner time. He's like, do you want some dinner? I was like, no, I, just cook your own. Don't worry about me. And he was like, you're not well, are you? I was like, mm, no, I don't, feel, I don't feel good at all. And then that's when labor started. That, yeah. was, that was the start of it. So, um, did, did, you, did you know that labor had started or was it just in hindsight you went, that was the moment where it all started? Um, in hindsight? Uh, yeah. it, it's definitely all hindsight because you're told so much about these Braxton Hicks contractions. Yeah. And as a first time mum, you don't know the difference between a Braxton Hicks and a real contraction. So I was having real contractions. Um, and I tried, you know, having a hot shower, heat packs, you know, the little spiky balls you have for your back, but you roll yeah. up against the wall. Tried all of that because everyone's like, Oh, you've got to get onto this when you start feeling this. So I was doing what I was always told. And, what even my midwife had told me if I was having any pain. Um, and it wasn't until none of that worked and I took two Panadol and sat down for half an hour and I could still feel this pain. I was like, oh, we've got to go. We've got to go get checked out. Yeah. So Michael's halfway through his dinner. And I'm like, ah, I'm just calling the hospital. We're heading off. Like, um, so in the car we went, I didn't even pack a bag. And halfway there, I was like, we have to go through two small towns on the way. And we were at the second town, Traff or Trafalgar. And I was like, um, I think I should have packed a bag. Michael's like, oh, no, it's all right. You're just going to get checked out and sent home again. It's fine. And in my mind, I knew it was a very different story because I'd started timing between these pains. And did, you have, did you have an app or did you just time it yourself? I was just the car clock just timing yeah. it myself. And I was like, oh, okay, we're at about three minutes. This is, this is not good. And at that point I started freaking out a bit because, um, you know, like I, I've got a friend who had a baby at 31 weeks and I was like, oh, if you get to 31 weeks, it's smooth sailing. Her son's seven. He's great. Like all, yeah. all good. Um, and that's when I started freaking out. I was like, I'm technically just on 27 weeks um and i just knew it wasn't i knew it was not good so, yeah yeah it, it sounds very not similar in a way so for those that are listening so why we're both passionate about this is my son was born at 30 weeks and three days in April. So a lot of what you're going talking about is like just bring all these memories back to me. So we'll probably for the listeners, we probably will just have this conversation and share share stories a little bit at some stage. Um and I was reading your Instagram, um, which I'll give a shout out to at the end. Um, so people can follow and learn more about this. But you got to the hospital and um after one doctor and nurse midwife was like, no, you're not pregnant still, um, <laughs> which we probably won't go into too much, but it, it was found you were, were pregnant. You were seven, seven, seven centimetres dilated. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you, you had an inkling what was going on, but what, what was Michael's experience like through then, through that period? Um, so he, he's, even the way he has a recollection of that night, he's like, we went into the hospital and he goes, it was us and a midwife in a room. And he goes, next minute, it was us and about 50 people in a room. Um, he just, he does, <laughs> we sort of both have a bit of a laugh about the doctor scenario. So one of them was like, oh, I'm just going to go get the boss doctor. <laughs> and then the boss doctor, who was the obstetrician who delivered Ava, came in. Um, and so we, we sort of have a bit of a laugh about it, but we, when we talk to people about it and especially when he talks, I've heard him talking to his friends and family about it. He's like, you know, it was just us and everything was okay. And we were, oh, we're just going to go home. We were a bit uh, oblivious to it all. Um, yeah. and then suddenly next minute there's 50 people, there's someone working on a bench over here, there's M over here, there's someone else there. And yeah, he, um, he just said it just went from zero to everything in a minute. So yeah, it's, it's crazy. I'm just picturing our hospital room. This is going to be like therapy for me as well, going through all reminiscing for me as well. So this might be good. Um, the birth itself, I mean, was it 
I know you don't have anything to compare it to, but was it relatively easy? Did the baby come out? Was there any scares in that in the in the actual pregnancy part? Um, it was all pretty easy, all pretty straightforward. Uh, the probably most heart stopping moments was that she was desatting a lot, um, which is apparently very common in all pregnancies, in all childbirths. Yeah. Um, and it's just to do with the way she was in there and trying to come out. Um, and so every time I was having a contraction, she was desatting. So it was a bit of a, she's ready to go. You need to push and get her out now um, kind of situation. But otherwise it was all pretty straightforward. Um, it's nothing like when you hit 20 weeks and every aunt comes out and tells you their most traumatic birth experience. It was nothing like what they had like drummed it up to be. It wasn't that bad. And yeah, I just, I, I think your expectation that you go in of childbirth, it was nowhere near that level of yeah. expectation for me. So. I, I was born at 2.4 kilos. Uh, 934 grams. Oh, 930, I don't know. No, yeah, 934. I don't yeah. know where I got that number from. I think Thank maybe I, last time we spoke, she had just made 2.4, yeah. I think. Yes, yeah, it's, it's in my head. Uh, so yeah. 934 grams. Do you remember how tall? Uh, so she was 36 centimetres. And I love the head circumference one. Do you remember the head circumference? Uh, it was like 24 centimetres. Yeah. So pretty small. It's like it's, and I guess I'm, I think that's important because anyone listening that's sort of gone through a normal birth, you know, babies can be sort of 2.4 to sort of anywhere to 4.5 or around that mark. So when the baby comes out that small and I guess this is probably probably part of the most traumatic part and definitely what we found and I'll share my experience with this as well and get your perspective and Michael's if you have it, is once the baby's born with a preemie, it's, it's probably the hardest moment um to be honest because a traditional birth you get to hold the baby um where with a preemie and you you kind of know before it happens you're not actually going to get to hold it and i guess i wanted to get your insight into what that was like for you and also for michael if he doesn't mind you speaking on behalf of him yeah that's all right um i think for us it was you don't get that contact and your baby's born and Ava's obviously I wasn't on steroids pre-birth. I, I don't know about Alicia, but um, so there was nothing to help develop her lungs further. So I had quick acting steroids injected into my leg um, as we got in. Um, and when Ava was born, we could hear this very, very faint squeak. Like the whole room went silent because everyone was waiting for that squeak. And that was her trying to cry, which meant that, her lungs had developed in enough that she could use them. Yeah. Um, and I think probably the, the hardest part was the fact that it was, she was delivered and the obstetrician literally just picked her up, turned around and gave her to the pediatrician who then had literally about 12 people around this little bed, the heated beds um, working on her and they just wheeled her out and, I think when they wheeled, us, wheeled her out and the room emptied, that's when it hit us. Like our baby has just gone there. We're here. We don't know what's going on. Um, I, I think that was the moment where we sort of got shocked by it all. Um, I guess in our minds we probably were a bit naive that, oh, we'll still get a little hug. Yeah. But you just don't get that at all. And I think now that's when we realise that's probably the hardest, most traumatic part of the whole birth that we've had because it was about an hour before we both got to see her. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was... It's, I, yeah, uh, I, like, I know I remember it. I remember that part of it like it was yesterday because like it was... It was Ryder, Ryder cried straight away and they actually... I remember, I remember this so well that... Doctor who delivered Ryder said he's breathing on his own. And I just remember it so clearly. And I, I didn't even know what it really meant. Like I didn't know what any of it meant, but I knew it was 
important because they don't just say things for no reason in that environment. Yeah. Um, and I do remember, so it was the same straight over to that heated bed and I was just like, so we are very fortunate. I, I had a feeling on the way into the hospital, so we, we went to the hospital at 3.30 and Ryder was delivered at 10 past 7, so it was very, very quick. And I remember I said to Alicia, well, I've got to call your mum because if he, Ryder's born today, they're going to wheel him straight out and I'm going with him, so I want someone there with you. And she's like, oh, I don't think I'm pregnant, so don't call mum yet. And I'm like, I'm calling your mum. And I just walked out of the room and called her. And she didn't know, and then I went back in and said, I called her, so she's coming. And um, so I remember, because that was what I probably, Michael probably found the hardest, do I go with the baby or do I stay with my partner? Um, because in hindsight, you look back and you go, I should have done the other one. But there is no right or wrong answer. And that's why I was really grateful that Alicia's mum was there. It was because I was like, I'm going with the baby. So I went straight with the baby because I wanted to know everything that was going on. So I could then report it back to Alicia and say, this is what's happening. This is what's going on. He's all right, blah, 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 blah. And now I think that just, so if anyone that's going through pregnancy that can, uh, you know, have your partner and someone else, a support person in there, if it's, if it's a childbirth that where they can get ruled away. Yeah. Um, so we were actually told um, as, as she was handed over and they started wheeling her out, oh, you need to wait. They need to stabilise her before you're allowed to see her. So um, I, I guess for us that was the bit that that shock hit was you need, she needs to be stabilised. We're like, well, yeah isn't she supposed to be able to do everything? Like she's a baby and she had a squeak and she tried to cry. Like, um, but yeah, that was, that was definitely pretty tough. And hundred percent, if you can have a support person in those situations, definitely take it. Um, I was probably a bit rude to my mom in the whole pregnancy um, because I just didn't want her like helicoptering me in the last few weeks. Yeah. Um, just, just an over, overprotective mum. Like I'll probably be the same in, you know, 20, 30 years, yeah. to be honest. <laughs> um, yeah. um, but like I, I just said to her, I remember saying, because she didn't get that with my, my brother's wife, obviously, because she took her mum in. And yeah. I think my mum was really hoping for a birth, like, you know, for that spot for the birth. <laughs> um, and I just said to her, I said, you know what, mum, you weren't there for the conception. You don't need to be there for the delivery. <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't have her and, and I guess maybe maybe if she was there, even though she lives like Central Vic now, um, I, I guess if she if it, this did happen and she lived closer, I, I think it might have been a little bit different. Michael might have been able to wait outside of the room where she was being stabilised. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just... And in the end, there's no right or wrong. Um, I hope people understand. There's no right or wrong. In the end, you're going to make these decisions on the fly and... Yeah. Um, hindsight's probably the most wonderful but worst thing in the world because you, you go back and go, oh, what should I have done? In essence, yeah. you did everything you could. And I think um, in my, on my Instagram page, I, I mentioned like, you know, I wish I fought more when I was told I was just pregnant and sent home. It's, um, you know, and, and it's hindsight and that's all yeah. it is. Like, yeah, yeah. It, it is what it is really. And it is. It, Quick question before I move on to the next part, and it's probably probably might I don't know might be one of the hardest parts to talk about. But did they give you any reason as to why you went into early labour? Um, there's been actually no medical reason found, um, which in a way, like we always found comfort in it um, that we knew that Ava wasn't sick. There was no placenta infection, therefore she didn't have any infection. Um, there was no placenta abruption, so there wasn't any risks involved with that. Um, it, it sort of, that sort of eased us a bit, but it's also changed the future outlook a little bit because now obviously if we go to have another child, we've been told there's all these rules around what we have to do. Like it's not, let's yeah. have another baby. It's, it's, you know, we have to have the consultations with the obstetricians first. We're going to have to be heavily monitored the whole way through, um, it's yeah because I it's I've tested negative for irritable uterus. They've done a couple of other tests, um, and they they don't believe that I've got an incompetent uterus. So yeah, it makes it quite hard. There's literally literally no reason why. 
yeah, well, I mean, I mean, we're in that club. We don't have a reason why either. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird, but it's also it's comforting in, in that way where he, there is nothing wrong in a sense. So um, like, like everything in the world, we will never know everything and we'll never know why certain things happen. Is it, we spoke about not being able to hold the baby. Yeah. Like this, this is probably the toughest part for me when they wheel the baby off. Not, not. We we were fortunate enough. We went to Box Hill and they were able to transfer first to the Mercy in time. Um, Alicia went from two and a half centimeters to five centimeters on the travel over. Um, so it was very lucky to actually make it. But I, I got to walk up to the ward to see down to the ward to see Ryder, and so did Alicia once. It, all, all of her stuff was um, healed and stitched and all the rest of it. You speak about the fact that you heard the helicopter that was about to fly Ava yeah. um, an hour and 40 minutes away from where you were. And yeah. Not, not only is your baby not in your room or your arms, your baby is literally being flown away from you. What was that like? And have you got any words of advice to anyone out there or anything? Um, I, I think it was literally the most vulnerable point of my life ever. Um, so working working there, I hear the chopper come in all the time over the top. Um, the way the flight path is, the helicopter has to come over the top of the hospital and land in front. Um, and you hear it all the time, you never think anything of it, but that night hearing it come in, it was like a stomach twisting emotion. Um, you knew, I knew it was there for Ava, but it was also this sense of a little bit of relief. Like I knew that she was about to be transferred to a tertiary level hospital where she would get the best care and they could look after her and make sure she has a really good chance. Um, the hardest bit was it was a really rainy night. Um, so I was worrying about the weather and the chopper being able to fly. Um, it was quite windy as well. And I heard the chopper leave and that's when, you know, I I literally laid there crying. Um, it was just, I think both of us broke down and I think a lot of that came from too. They had issues with the, um, transport cot to get onto the chopper. Um, they got Ava all packed up and ready to go. And then they had issues with getting oxygen into the cot. Um, it was... So there was that sense of fear too. What happens if that cot stops getting the oxygen on flight? Um, that was a bit of, it was playing on my mind a little bit too. And I was just really waiting for that phone call um, from the minute she left. Cause they said, you know, as soon as she's there and stabilized, we will call you. Um, so hearing that trouble go. And then obviously they had another trauma incident where they needed another chopper to come back into the hospital. So to hear one come over. So, Ava had been flown out about 40 minutes later. I hear a chopper come back in and all I could just think is that better not be my baby in that chopper. He better have made it to Melbourne. Um, Yeah. uh, It's words of advice. I I really can't give any on that one. I think it's, it's a very tough moment. And, you know, if you want to cry, you're allowed to be vulnerable and break down and cry at that moment. Like I guess that's probably one thing that made me feel a little bit better was just sitting there crying. Like you don't have to be strong all the time. So, um, honestly, it's probably the best advice. I actually agree with you. I remember this first day I I got to stay in the hospital the first night with Alicia and Ryder. Um, and then that second night I went home and I reckon I, yeah, I reckon I cried for like four or five hours and the, the, the next day I woke up and I felt like, all right, my baby and my wife need me now. Um, you've got what you needed to get out. And it, it happened again and again, but having those moments and time where you just can let it all out, it allows you to actually be there and be present when the time comes. And the time that definitely does come. Um, you, I did read, I do want to clarify, you got out of hospital the next day or? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so Ava was in the chopper by about 12.30. Um, I was discharged 
at about 9am the next morning. Um, they kept me in overnight just to observe um, a few things, make sure I was healthy. Um, obviously, they couldn't let me go straight away. So they they kept me in until the morning. Um, I Michael came home and because we left in such a rush, like the kitchen light was still on, the heater was still on, the dogs were still inside the house. <laughs> like They weren't even outside in a kennel. Um, so he he came home and tried to get some sleep and he said he got about four hours. Um, I think I got about 40 minutes. Yeah. Um, because by the time I just drift off to sleep and that's when they'd called me to say that she was stabilized and doing well. Um, but yeah, it was next morning, basically have a shower, have your breakfast, you're good to go. So yeah, off we went. I was not staying. I was like, my baby's in Melbourne. I've got to get there. So Michael came pick you up and you basically went straight there. Did yeah. did anyone else know that you'd given birth by then? Had you told people? We had told just our mums. Yeah. Um, and then my mum obviously went into shock and then just like she told my brother, which I don't mind. Um, yeah. But she'd also told her, my, my aunts and whatnot. So I was getting a couple of messages from them. Um, we told Michael's mum and... So obviously she had told his sisters, uh, two sisters and his dad, um, but they, they kept it very quiet from the aunts, which was probably nice to just get that from just one side of the family. Side, the yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I actually do have those in my notes. It's, yeah, it's extremely mixed feelings and you did openly talk about this. Like you're getting messages of congratulations and you are happy, but at the same time, like, and it, the truth is, and I say this with all due respect to everyone else, like, they don't understand but it's also good that they don't understand because it means they haven't gone through it but for someone that is going through it like those messages of congratulations are literally yes you are happy but the next minute you could be looking at your baby which we'll talk about in a minute who's hooked up to machines and this beeping and this and they're literally fighting for their life so you're like, do I take these congratulations on board knowing that my baby is fighting for life? Like it's a very ripping situation to be in. What, first question, like what was that like? And it's probably hard to, to do, but what advice would you give people, friends and family that know someone that's gone through what you have essentially? Um, I think... I, I coped with it by generally not replying to the message. Um, I, I just mentally couldn't do it. I was like how my emotions were, were I think the same way you're like, yeah, I've had a baby. This is exciting, but my baby's fighting for its life. I don't know what's going on. I can't control the situation and I'm not there to protect her right now and advocate for her. Um, so I just didn't reply to them until um, the next day, I think it was, um, just to give myself some space to process everything because I also felt that if I replied, oh, thanks or something, that people would want a bit of an update of where she's at, what she's doing. And I couldn't give that information because I didn't know myself. Yeah. Um, I think my advice is to anyone who might go through the same situation is you don't have to reply to a message. Um, if it does upset you, you can just leave it. And you can either attend to it when you feel like it or you just leave it. Like Once people work out what you're going through and what's actually happening, they seem to not mind so much if you don't reply. So yeah. um, no one's, I, I've found everyone around me has been really good if I haven't replied just because I'm either too busy, upset about something or just not, not feeling replying. Um, yeah, but yeah, that's my advice, I guess. And it's like it is. It's I guess the best way to describe it is like your emotions can literally go from one minute you are ecstatic to the next minute you're bursting into tears, wanting to throttle someone because they can't give you an answer as to why something's happening. Like it, it just happens, and people say people might say, "Well, you calm down or whatever," but the, the fact is like. As parents, and you don't know this until you're a parent, and I'll safely say I was very ignorant to it before I was a parent, but when your child is in pain or suffering, you literally would want to do anything. But 
in the NICU unit, you literally cannot do anything except, and this takes time, but you can start to put your hands in to touch the baby. Yeah. That, that's literally it. And even then, yeah, it's just maybe a finger or whatever. So you got to the hospital. What was it like? Was it what you were expecting or was it just this whole different kettle of fish? It was completely different to what I even had in mind. You know, to be honest, I don't even know what I had in mind. <laughs> um, I, I knew that there would be, you know, the um, isolates. I had no idea about the humidity in them. I had no idea how they worked, what their purpose was. Um, and, yeah, I walked in and I remember walking past this mum who I've become friends with um, and she was holding her baby and hugging her baby that day and, in my mind, I was like, oh, I get to hug her. But no, that takes time. Yeah. Um, and I just, I just remember walking in and the nurse just, she was sitting at the desk next to Ava's cot and she just stood up and she was like, well, you know, she's doing really well and all this and all that. And as soon as we got in, she's called the doctors over and everyone over and it's, it's basically like this is how she's going and everything. But you can't open that door on the isolate because you've got to press a button to do it anyway. And we, we didn't learn about that button until uh, almost a week later where we were allowed to put our hands in and everything. So, um, yeah, it's pretty, it's very confronting. And, um, something Michael actually said when we saw another dad come in, um, weeks after us and we're like, it is the one place in the world where everyone is so vulnerable and emotions are so high and yeah. to see it from grown grown men who look like they're so tough and strong to see it from ladies that you think would be the world's strongest women and could take on anything and you just see them at their absolute weakest it's it's really tough we so you um one nurse to one baby at this yeah. stage yeah so you were in the room so we we, we skip we skip that room yeah, so we were uh, in cots one to one to seven. So. Yeah, yeah. I think we I can't even remember. We did that much bed. Right, did that much bed hopping through his time there. I can't remember <laughs> what bed number, but yeah, it's like you're hundred percent correct. And I, I remember it was amazing. I remember I'd gone out to Ryder and I'd gone out. I'd gone out. I wanted to call my mum. She'd already known what was going on, but I just wanted to give her an update. And um, a mum came out. And I was on the phone and she said, um, I don't have anything else. I, you need to eat. And she gave me these two chocolate Freddo frogs. And I was, I nearly lost it in tears. I was like, oh my God, this mum who's in there with her baby, like has just done that for me. I was just like, holy crap. Like, and it just, it just, as the, week, the days and the weeks got on, I started to really see like, how hard it was for everyone that was in there you could see like people were just exhausted like that and because it's just so exhausting that's that first week i want to know i want to try and understand how you guys were feeling not being able to you know tape and touch ava let alone hold yeah, what was that like for you? I know for me, and I'll speak about Alicia and I, like we felt quite disconnected. We felt like at times it wasn't our child. Like some days it'd be like, oh, our baby's in, but then it'd be like, it'd be weird. You'd have to kind of switch off as well. Um, how was that for you guys? Yeah, we were a bit the same. We were like, this is our baby, but it it just didn't feel like it was our baby. Um, you know, you as you said, you can't touch them. You can't open the door of the isolate. It's, um, I was worrying about that maternal bond. Like, am I going to love this baby? Am I going to be able to raise it? Like, uh, how am I going to do this if I can't even hold it right now? Um, and cause you know, they say all that bonding happens in that moment. And it's like, well, where well, did this baby doesn't like us because we, we can't even touch it. Like, <laughs> yeah. um, yeah, it's, it's, a very surreal feeling and it's you kind of don't realize that your parents until someone's like mum and dad and you're like what <laughs> like, me i'm a mum <laughs> especially and I'm like with that early birth and i know not everyone's like this but alicia was and it sounds like you were you, you healed pretty quickly 
So it probably doesn't, you probably don't feel like you've actually, actually had a baby. So it's that other side to it as well. It's like, is it, this really happen? Like, is it real? Like, or is this fake? And then you're like, no, it's not. But then there's the other side to it is that, and this, this is a, this is something that's still happening for you guys as well. So a lot of what we'll probably talk about through the next party is stuff that's ongoing and it's, how was it each day leaving the hospital or or when you did leave the hospital how was that um it's, this is actually a question i still get asked on the daily um those early days it, i had this sense of guilt um i'm leaving the hospital i'm leaving her and these nurses are up all night looking after my baby and i'm at home sleeping um not that we actually did get much sleep it's um very very hard to get a decent sleep in those times. Um, but it's, yeah, it's like a sense of guilt almost. Like you're, it, I guess I would say you feel like you're almost failing as a parent uh, because you're not doing any of the parenting. But it's a situation where you can't do any of that and you really do need to rest up yourself. Like the nurses and that, you know, if you express that that's how you're feeling, I'll be like, she's in the best place and she's got 24 hour care and we can do everything here that she needs that you can't do at home. And yeah, it, it took probably two weeks to initially really get used to it. Um, and now even now, like uh, Ava had a bit of a rough day yesterday um, and we had both Mark and I were sitting on the couch last night and we we're both like, we're not sure we're going to have a great sleep tonight because we're a little bit anxious about what's, what's going on, but we know she's in a good place. There are nurses watching out for it. Um, and it is probably the best place to be because, you know, if she was home, we, we wouldn't be able to provide the level of care that she needed even last night. Like we wouldn't be able to watch her like a hawk at 2 a.m. in the morning when she's getting fed to make sure something didn't happen. Like it's, yeah, it's, it's a really surreal feeling. Um, I guess now as we're getting a bit closer and seeing the light to coming home, that feeling of guilt sort of coming back a little bit. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, my baby's there and I'm not there and I'm not looking after her. Someone else is looking after her. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a it, bit of a bit of a strange feeling really. It, it is. Oh, I can concur 100%. I guess that brings us on to the next point because I just agree with everything you just said and you're so torn and I remember people saying, oh, you know, at least you'll get a good night's sleep. And I'm like, oh, my God, I've not slept properly since the baby was born because you, you do. You, it's just natural. You, you're worrying about your child who's in ICU. Like it's not, it's not just in hospital. The baby is in ICU intensive care. Like it's, it's we, we, I won't go into this too much detail, but in one day I went to ICU for elderly and ICU for a baby and it was probably the worst hour of my life because you are literally seeing birth and death but both fighting for life and it was just, yeah. it's not a place, I don't want anyone that ever, I don't want anyone to ever go into any ICU if they don't have to because it's literally horrible. But there's the other point to it, you leave and I don't know if this is the same for you, but we have our phones on us all the time because we didn't want to miss that phone call if something went wrong. Yeah. And then the hospital come, the, the number comes up in the hospital. Does it actually, so I never saved it, but it comes up and says mercy for women's. Does that yes. happen with you? Yes, that's exactly right. Um, so I don't even know how to talk about this. You, I never have a phone in my hand that much like I have in the last 80 odd days. Like it is full on and we've had so many 2am, I don't know about you guys, but we've had a few 2am phone calls um, and it, you just see that phone number come up and your gut drops. Um, it is the worst thing. And then obviously as they start progressing and you get the phone calls because they want to ring and see if the wrap that she's in is your wrap or if it's one of theirs. Yeah. And like they, they literally have to pick up the phone. I said to myself, if you're calling me just for something small, you've got to call. And before I even finish saying hello, just tell me everything's okay. <laughs> because it is, 
those phone calls and seeing that number on your phone is the most heart dropping moment. It's yeah. It, yeah. We, you do. Know, and I spoke to my therapist about this and I said, I've been living off in fight or flight mode for once right left hospital for 51 days and Alicia's mum was in hospital for seven days post that. So it was 58 days where I was by the phone. And because Alicia's mum was in hospital for 35 days, I had her phone a lot as well because she was dealing with so much. I was like, do you give me both phones? So then, and I said to my therapist, I said, I've been living in fight or flight mode for 58 days. This is going to take me a while to actually break out of this type of mould. And I remember the hospital called me one day. And I like telling this story because it, it had a happy ending. But they called me and they said, it's blah, blah, blah from the mercy. Don't worry, everything's all good. And I was like, okay, fuel. Like, thank you for it. They just said it straight. And I was like, and that's what obviously you said before. They said, right, uh, he, he'd been taken off his breathing. Um, I don't remember what it was all called, but he got taken off all the stuff that was helping you breathing. And it was three days and it was on a Monday morning about nine o'clock. And I was going in that day and they said, he's, he's lifeless. And I was like, that's not good. And they're like, no, 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 he'll be fine. Like he's lifeless at the moment, but he's still like, he's just needs to be put back on the breathing. And I was like, okay. And then, I remember I went in there and I walked in there and it, this was the worst, probably this one of the worst moments of my life. I walked in, he was, he was lifeless. He was, and they actually said he was, he was quite blue. Um, and I was like, holy shit. And then I, I still remember, and I, I laughed and it happened, but I remember the oxygen must have been really flowing and um, he, never, he never liked the tubes in his face. Um, and I remember I was about 11.30, I'd just been sitting there basically without crying, a miserable wreck, And because Alicia wasn't in that morning. And I just remember Ryder like, waking up and just trying to rip his tubes out of his nose, and I just laughed, and I was just like, oh, thank God for that. Like, it was, yes, they were telling me he was okay, but until I saw that from him, I, I didn't believe it. And it was probably, like, yeah, the worst two and a half hours of my life. Like, it was just... So, so, but I say that, but he wasn't in the sneakers in special care. So if you're looking at it from the outsider's perspective, you'd understand that he's okay, but when you're in it, you don't think that. Yeah. That's, yeah, I, I understand completely what you're saying. Um, we had a phone call one morning uh, and it was just the nurse ringing to tell me before she finished night shift and the nurse's name was also Emily. Um, and she's like, which I think to work at the Mercy, your name's either got to be Sarah or Emily because that's <laughs> most of their names. Um, anyway, she was like, oh, Ava had a little episode last night and it was, we were doing the transition from high flow straight onto self-venting. Um, so she was skipping low flow altogether as she was in just air. She wasn't in um, oxygen. Yeah. And so oh, she had a little episode last night and we had to press the red buzzer on it. So yeah. when you come in today, you're going to see her on low flow because they've put her on some because she's not recovering too well. Like she's fine, but she's yeah. not recovering too well. And I just remember walking in and like she's quite a sassy little baby and to see her just so lethargic and like just really like she's pale anyway, but to see her super, super pale, like ghostly pale, I, I almost just bought my eyes crying, but I was like, no, just hold yourself together. Everything's okay. And I knew that there was a bub next to us that was having a few more issues than us. And I was like, everything's okay. She's going to be fine. And yeah. But it's just the hardest thing to see. And those phone calls, like, it's just, like you said, right? they're like, oh, everything's okay. But, and you're like, yeah. it's not okay. Like, <laughs> what do you mean? You just had to narrow past my daughter. Like, that's essentially <laughs> resuscitation. But, oh, she's fine. <laughs> like, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, and, I guess for listeners that don't go through this and I don't want to paint it as this scary picture, but in essence, it actually is. But these are the things that are like a daily occurring for the, for basically most of your hospital stay. And I know for Ryder, basically the last 10 days were basically perfect in a sense. But prior to that was just this roller coaster um, up and down. Um, 
you've spoken a little bit about the setbacks. You've, you've basically had one in the last sort of 24 to 36 hours. So I want to obviously thank you right now for actually doing this podcast and sharing your story. But, you know, it's been 82 days in hospital. So she Ava would be 37 weeks. Uh, 38. 38 weeks yeah. gestation. So you've had a bit of a hiccup in the last 24 hours. Like what's, what's happened there and how yeah. are you guys doing? So on the like progress to basically getting her home, um, they do a lot of physio assessments. Um, and for all prem babies, they're at high risk of having um, cerebral palsy uh, and other basically neuro issues. Um, so Ava, although she did quite well in some areas of her physio assessment, some areas she's technically failed. Um, and so when she was at the mercy, part of that process in NICU is they do the brain ultrasounds to make sure that everything's okay. There's no brain bleeds, um, and that the brain's developing well. And so she did quite well on all of those. Uh, but today we were told that she's going to have to be transferred back to a tertiary hospital to have an MRI. Um, and basically they're going to be checking her to make sure she's, she doesn't have um, a brain bleed or scarring from a brain bleed or um, any traces of cerebral palsy. So it is, we're staying positive about it. Like she's had these ultrasounds, they've come back good. Um, her development otherwise is quite well um, and she's on track besides a couple of small little things. But so we're staying positive on it that, you know, things, things will be okay and this is just definitely a precaution to rule it out. And yeah. um, our doctor at the current hospital, he's amazing. Uh, he even said to us, he's, he, uh, I'm not sure what his nationality is, but he's like, you know, here in Australia, you're quite lucky that we have this ability that we can do these to rule everything out now. He goes, because where I come from, you can't get an MRI, let alone get an MRI to just rule something out. So yeah. Um, we are staying quite positive about it. We think it'll be all okay. Um, but it's still, it's still a setback and it still hits just as hard as the very first setback that you get. Um, none of them get any easier. Yeah. And you're right. It's that roller coaster you're riding. And I guess I, I wanted to bring that up just to show us just so people could hear that, you know, the, the journey of a primary baby literally is, it is long um, and it is day by day. It's not even day by day. It's literally hour by hour. And that's exhausting in itself. Um, you know, looking after a baby, looking after yourself. And I guess that leads into the next question and something I think we're both passionate about is Michael had to go back to work Yeah. while this is going on because you need a roof over your head when Ava gets home and Ava needs food on the table when she, well, there's more to that, but <laughs> Ava will need food at some point. Um, you know, like what was that, that like for you, for Michael, for, for the whole situation? Because you need Michael as much as Ava needs Michael in this. Like it's, it's traumatic and it is difficult and it is exhausting and you need your partner there, but I have to go back to work. Yeah. So. Um at the start, Michael was quite lucky. He got his three weeks parental leave, um, working for a T1 company. That's a bit of a luxury. Um, and then that was when lockdown four in Melbourne was about to fully kick in. Yeah. Um, and he's working on a, he was working on a major project um, and the cafe across from his work site was a exposure site. So at the last minute, two days before his shift was supposed to start his week's worth of shifts was supposed to start. He rang his boss and he said, oh, I can't come in um, across the roads and exposure sites. Um, I, I can't risk it because if I go, if someone come, has at work has been there, they come to work and work becomes an exposure site. That means that's 14 days of isolation before we can go and see Ava. Yeah. Um, and if he had been in the hospital because he was often he was thinking, you know, I'll come in after work or come in before work on night shifts. Um, 
He's like, if I go and say from work to the hospital, that then makes the hospital a tier two exposure site, which then ruins it for every other parent. Um, that was our first sort of introduction into people not understanding the severity of the situation. Yeah. Um, and his boss sort of just played it off and gave a bit of a guilt trip on us that like, he was like, oh, well, I guess I'll get someone to cover your shifts then. He's like, well, that's what you get paid the big bucks to do, mate. So yeah, you will. <laughs> um, um, so Michael then took his annual leave at that point. Um, we were in a bit of a situation where Michael couldn't take too much longer off work because the, the nature of Michael's work is it's project work. You get made redundant, then you get a new job. And we always knew around Ava's due date, he'd be redundant. We'd planned for that, worked it out, but we didn't plan for this to happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he, he went back to work and we sort of made it work, but it also meant that the two of us pretty much didn't see each other for seven days at a time. It would, I would have Avery out of her isolate at that point and he would literally come in and literally like sub in for a hug with Ava um, and that's when I would leave because I would have been there all day or he'd have been there all day before work. So it was, it was quite tough and it also made talking to doctors and nurses quite difficult um, because he wasn't there. So I was processing and, um, mm. understanding things the way that I would understand it. Whereas he'd have a different set of questions for the doctors or the nurses, um, every time something happened. And we found those days where we did have a setback or there was something that needed to be done, uh, whether it would be routine or not. It was quite hard because we both practically translated what was said to us differently. Um, and also too, like you have those days like Michael saw an incident with Ava that I wasn't there for. And he was a mess and I couldn't understand how he felt because I didn't understand what, what it looked like. But basically Ava had choked really badly that she, um, stopped breathing. Um, and it happened on Michael. Michael was sitting there with her and, I didn't understand. I was like, oh, but she's fine now. Like her stats are good. Like she's, she's fine. It wasn't until about three days later it happened to me where yeah. I understood how that <laughs> felt and that image. And yeah, it's, it makes it hard when you can't be there together. Um, and, but you know, you, you've still got a mortgage to pay. You've still got bills, bills still keep coming in. Like Vic Rhodes doesn't stop your rego for you or, um, you know, your internet still needs to run. So it's, yeah, it's yeah. definitely, definitely a bit of a tough situation. Like, I guess we're quite lucky. We were sort of lucky a little bit in that situation because we'd, we'd planned and had good savings, but you know, some people in there didn't have that financial backing and, you know, one of the mums of Above in that same area of the NICU as Ava, she never came in, and I couldn't really understand why until I spoke to her one day when we were all down in HDU, and she had other kids at home. They had one family car that they all had to share, and Dad had to use that to get to work. Yeah. So she she could only come in of an evening when all the other kids were in bed and set down for the night, and Dad was home to be there with them. Yeah, no, I. And I, we were very fortunate as well. I, I'd been working in the traineeship role, which I could take time off from, and we we, we used a lot of our savings. Um, it was, uh, which was lucky, but you don't want to use your savings for that, but it has to be that way. And I, I do remember as well, so we had someone, a lady, yeah, another, another kid who then most days they would both come in, but then they'd have to pay for babysitting or something like that. And... Um, so, and then there was another, there was a lot, I remember across from us, there was a guy who came in one day, a tradie, and the nurse came over and said, oh, have you seen the mum or the dad? And they're like, oh, they think they've been here for two or three days. And I was like, that's just, and uh, we found out they lived about two and a half, three hours away. And they were still trying to get accommodation for her, but he had to keep working. And I think the one thing I remember saying to, to, where I was doing work was, you know, we get two weeks, males tend to get two weeks off, but do we use that now while the baby's in ICU or do we use it when the baby comes out? Because the baby comes out and 
you know, fortunately, Ryder's been out for a few weeks now. Those two weeks are really difficult as well because you have had the nurses look after your baby and they've gone from having machines and you'll experience this where it tells you everything that's going on yeah. to not having those and you're like, every time, so, like I still find myself, pardon me, I still find myself going, is Ryder breathing? Because I haven't got a machine beeping at me to tell me he's breathing. So it's really difficult. And I think, and I remember, I did read the article you shared a little while ago about New South Wales bringing in something which helps cover this. And I think essentially it needs to happen because, you know, I look at Alicia, I look at you and I go, normal pregnancies with women have an effect with postnatal depression. Like this is a whole different kettle of fish. They need their partner through this period of time as much as possible. Yes, it's not possible to have six months off, but have a few, a few weeks at the start and a few weeks towards the end or whenever, where it's whatever it might look like. Yeah. So I think New South Wales, they're, what they're implementing is amazing. So it's any baby born before 36 weeks, um, you will get a paid parental leave um, for both parents, or for at least the mother anyway. So the mum's not using her mat leave. Um, I think it's definitely something that I'm happy to rally for for every future mum in this situation because I myself, like I was lucky I've got a good employer that let me take my sick leave first and then use my annual leave and my idea is that I had banks. Um, but a lot of these mums, like one of them, a, a mum who was across from Ava uh, the other day, she had been home for two weeks and then they had came back in as things weren't going so well at home um, with the bub and she told me that she has to go back to work in September because she's used all of her mat leave now and her baby was born in April. So like just that that thought alone, like I felt for that mum, like, you have to go back to work and you've essentially only just got a full-term baby. Like, although your baby's birth age is a one that you can put it into childcare, that's essentially putting a two week old baby in childcare. It's yeah. Yeah. And I I think it's something that certainly needs to be rallied for. And yes, certainly something I want to work, work on um, in my spare time coming up. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, but babies don't give you much spare time. Uh, although I'm finding out that Alicia at 3am is now buying stuff. So, um, oh, yeah, I've been doing that. <laughs> um, there's a lot I still want to cover if you don't mind going through it. And what I might do is I might break this into two podcasts. Yeah, sure. The, um, the next part I want to talk about is the achievements of a premier. And I, I, I want to get your thoughts and feelings on this. And I'm not saying that anyone, that they shouldn't share their achievements of a, of a baby who's out of hospital, et cetera. And, but how is that for you guys? Like I, I remember there's babies born around a similar time and that they were sharing the post, you know, six months old and they were out. And, you know, for us, the achievements are, are different. Yeah. And so we... we Briefly spoke about it before, but I remember the biggest achievement was like um, coming off the high flow, like yeah. coming off like coming off machines is, is an achievement. Like, what was that like for you guys to wrap your head around that your your baby is now oh, twelve weeks old? Yeah, so we um we were, we were pregnant at the same time as a few other friends, but we were supposed to be the last baby. Ended up being the first one. Um, She's obviously very competitive. Um, yeah. Anyway, I, I just remember people having their babies and like, oh, one month old today and starting tummy time or, you know, starting tummy time and whatever. At that same time, we were sitting in the hospital and, you know, Ava was on CPAP level seven. Um, so CPAP is obviously what they go on just after they come off and been intubated. Um, so... That move from intubation to CPAP, we didn't really see that as a milestone at all. We didn't really understand the whole process of what was going on. Um, and then she's gone on to CPAP and she was on level seven and then she was going down the levels. And when she got to level five, like 
it was party time. We were so excited <laughs> because we knew that a couple of days on this and she's going to be on high flow to like the next day. Um, so that obviously took a while in itself, but every step down on that CPAP level was, that was a little celebration in itself. Um, I think the other big one that we really had, which most people don't even, wouldn't even think about. So Ava was born at 934 grams. The first two weeks we had, um, so generally babies lose weight anyway when they're born. Um, so she did all that normal stuff. She put on 30 grams. After, so she went down to 830 grams. Then she put on 30 grams to 860. Um, and then we had some a setback with some food intolerances. She had to be fasted, have transfusions, things like that. Um, and that then stopped, delayed her weight gain. So then her next celebration that we had was she was a kilo and we were so excited. Like even the nurses, I don't, um, they made like a little, little poster that said one kilo club and it had the date and a photo of her on that day. Um, you know, it, it was a massive deal. And it's like, you don't, when you see everyone else doing their Facebook posts, milestone posts with their babies, you know, today I got my first tooth. No one has today. I made a kilo or today I made two kilos, <laughs> but they're the milestones you're looking for. Cause you, you know, you have to get over those weights and you have to go up in the weights because it means certain things and they can start progressing. Like, uh, Ava was at a gestation where she could come out of an isolate um, and she was sort of maintaining her body weight, but she didn't make the weight requirement to come out of the isolate. So that yeah. delayed, delayed that milestone by two weeks. But, you know, and that's, that's the other milestones. Like it's, it's all your ventilations, like going down the levels to breathing on their own. And then it's, you know, coming out of an isolate into an open cot, which people, like in a normal pregnancy and with a normal birth, you wouldn't even think of that being a milestone, but that's, it's, it's a big deal for us. And those days were out probably the nights we slept the best because we knew she was doing so well. Yeah. Um, I, yeah so I remember Ryder's first cot. So going into the cot and I remember first time we could put clothes on him. Yeah. Um, that was another huge milestone because you just, you can't do that early on. Um, they're, they're weird and people people don't understand it, <laughs> to be honest. Even like first bath. Like Ava was 10 yeah. and a half weeks old before she got her first bath and we were so excited. But if you say that to someone who's, you know, had a full-term baby and everything, they're like, you're excited over, that excited over a first bath? Like, yeah. <laughs> this is a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> this is amazing. It is. It's... Uh, to be honest, probably for you guys, we, I think we got to hold Ryder in about three days. But for you guys, it took a bit longer. I mean, that that's just huge. And it's, you both, oh, I would dare say you both probably remember it, but you you probably both put a gown on, I'm guessing. No. Or we I think that day I'd had a button-up shirt on for some odd yeah. reason. Um, I think I knew it was coming. Like we were told that, you know, if everything's all good and these IVs are taken out, she can, she can have hugs. So I think I just started wearing button up shirts around that, that time <laughs> just in case. Um, and Michael just, he just took the shirt off. He was like, shirt oh, off, yeah. yeah, don't mind. Um, but that, I don't know about you guys, but that first hug, like you are so happy. You are literally crying. It's yeah. It, it, I, I, can't even put the words around how that felt. It was just like, imagine getting a, a puppy for the first time <laughs> and hugging that puppy because you're so excited because you've never had a puppy all your life and that's all you've ever wanted. And it's like, you've had this baby and all you've wanted to do for the last two weeks or two and a half weeks is hug your baby and this is your chance. Like, it's, yeah. yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> it is. It's like, it's such a good feeling. And then, but yeah, yeah, so careful because there's also these, it's hooked up to a machine. So you're holding this baby and because they're so small, it, it's pretty easy to find a position, but you've also got tubes that are, well, the nurses have to make sure the tubes are positioned the right way so they don't slip off and they have to make sure they're not in a position where the baby will get in the wrong. So it's, it's, it's brilliant, but it's also like, I cannot move this baby because it's connected to machines. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, so I don't know about you guys, but Ava had um, IVs still in and long lines still in her arms. So 
you couldn't even like we weren't even allowed to pick her up and put her on us like they we literally had to sit there and they put her on us yeah we all we could literally do was hold the blanket over the top and just hold her in position and every time she tried moving her head because she had a CPAC mask on that she didn't like it was we had to call a nurse over like we we couldn't move her head it was just yeah it's such a controlled environment and it's obviously for a reason, but it's, yeah. And that, that kind of makes you a little bit more scared because you're like, they have to do it. I can't do it. But you're like, you're just like, it's my baby. I want to be able to help. So it's, it's, yeah, it's just bizarre. The whole experience, to be honest. Thanks for listening to Power, Strength and Vulnerability, the mental health podcast. If anything in this podcast has brought up difficult feelings, please call Lifeline on 13 1144. For any further information, or if you want to bring your story to life, contact Shane at Shane at VitalityFit.com.au. That's V I T A L I T Y F I T T.com.au.